Kia ora Good morning. I'm Emily Perkins, and I'm moderating this event with John Raymond. Um, John is the author of the novels The Half-Life, Rain Dragon, and the forthcoming Free Bird, which is named for the power ballad by Leonard Skinner, um, and I'm sure for other reasons as well. And his book of short stories, Livability, which is really wonderful, and I highly recommend you get this from your local independent bookstore, um, includes the stories Old Joy and Train Choir, which became the films Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy. And those collaborations with the director, Kelly Reichert, also led on to the film Meek's Cut-Off, which um, John wrote just an original screenplay for. Um, it's not based on a story. And the co-writing project, Night Moves. And he also worked with the director, Todd Haynes, on the adaptation of Mildred Pierce for the HBO series. So that's um, an interesting adaptation because it's based on a James Cain novel, but it's probably also known for the like 1945 noir film, um, which plays fast and loose with the novel, and the adaptation is much more faithful. Um, his fiction and his script writing has won or been nominated for multiple awards, including the John Cassavetes Award at the Independent Spirit Awards, the Sundance Festival Humanitas Award, and an Emmy. He is from Oregon and lives there again now, having spent time living, studying, and writing in New York. John's stories have been described as sublimely electric, which I think gets at something that's key to the films as well, and that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it does, I think, get to something that is happening in the films, which is that they're notable for their sort of sense of space and, um, and pace and openness, but also they're held by this tension, which is sometimes delicate and sometimes dense, but it's always to do with the situation that the characters find themselves in and what's driving them and the kind of urgency of the ideas underneath the films. And, um, and then there's this sort of extraordinary act of nerve and restraint in terms of what is not put on the screen or in the story. I think there's, they're very spacious films that allow the, um, the viewer to enter them in quite an unusual way. Um, so we're gonna talk about restraint and control, we're gonna talk about the sort of wildness that I think pulses underneath the, the scripts and at the edges, and um, we'll have some time at the in for audience questions about 10 minutes, but right now, please welcome John Raymond. Thank you. Um, and let me just start by saying thank you so much to Emily for doing this. Um, Emily is an amazing writer, and you guys should read her books. I'm yeah, halfway right. through one of them right now. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just did, I thought of an answer for the one you're oh, you talking did? about, so yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so we thought just to get in the zone, we'll start straight away with a clip. Um, this is from Wendy and Lucy, and uh, if you don't know the film, um, or do you want to set up where she's at with this moment? Um, yeah, I can give a, a quick thing. Um, so the film uh, and the story are about uh, a woman who is traveling uh, through Oregon, where I live, uh, on her way to Alaska to work in the fish canneries up there. And this is like an annual migration that happens. People um, going up to Alaska to earn money um, quickly um, on the, on what they call the, um, what do they call them, like slop lines or something like that, but cleaning fish and canning them and stuff. Um, uh, her car has broken down um, and uh, her dog has uh, been taken, ha has disappeared, 
Uh, and, and she's been um, briefly detained for a little shoplifting episode. So what were her, her, um, her finances, which were precarious to begin with, have, have begun to um, crumble, and she's kind of stuck uh, on this on the strip in, in Portland. And, and I think this is where she's going to seek out her dog in a pound, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sheesh. <laughs> yeah, look away from yeah. that. <laughs> So it seems to me that that scene is just doing so much in, in the most pared back and minimal kind of simple way. Um, one of the things you mentioned yesterday in your masterclass was that you feel like you're interested continually or have been in stories of, of people being trapped in some way. Um, and you know, the scene operates as a beautiful visual metaphor for that, for, for Wendy's situation, um, but it's also about her love and her sense of you yeah. know longing and and all of that so yeah, yeah. i just wondered if you could speak a bit to that yeah absolutely drive. um uh i mean this particular character um uh in a way is is like one of the one of the thinnest and most ill-defined characters i feel like i've ever um tried to write and in a sense she is almost purely a function of her problem you know like i really cared so little about the psychology of this character as the writing was happening, but only in having someone um, in a really terrible situation in a certain sense. And I think um, that was partly what I, I think allowed uh, both Kelly and Michelle such, um, in a way, space and freedom in creating a beautiful character, because there kind of wasn't one there. Um, she is a product of, of, a, of a financial crisis and um, all, and I think becomes a kind of, um, it, it allows you to project your own sense of, of kind of, um, yeah, love and um, fear and, and vulnerability on, onto this person. And um, I think, uh, you know, there can be a kind of 
mystical idea about like finding the inner character and like finding the still small voice of the character and following it along. But sometimes it's really about just creating a coherent situation um, that almost anyone can relate to and then um, just allowing that to sort of play out or sustain. Um, I mean, a situation like that of, you know, hoping to see your dog in, the, in a pound, it doesn't take a lot of explanation. And I think the, the kind of tension and suspense and emotional power um, just is purely a function of duration. You know, it's like once you have the situation, it can then sustain. And there doesn't need to be that, like, talking that, like, goes on in so many movies. I mean, it's like watching people, like, explicitly articulate their feelings all the time to me is just like uncomfortable. Like I don't like hearing that in life, you know? And like I would prefer, like my, my sympathies for people usually come out of their silences and their inabilities to articulate things. And like when they're actually talking about themselves and their problems is when I kind of shut off and it's just like, you know, just fucking deal with it, you know? Um, but uh, there, I don't know, there's something more, to me, to me it like it allows the emotion to flow more. Yeah, perhaps that's my own perversity, but yeah. But I think also it's about um, the universality that you're describing, like mm -hmm. a situation that anyone can project themselves yes. into, really relies on specificity to mm -hmm. be able to feel, to totally, have any power. Totally, totally. And yeah, this movie was actually really funny that way because it does so much rely on this, uh, I mean, basically an experience of, uh, of poverty, you know? And it became this hilarious litmus test for people. Like I once got an email from someone who's like, I went on a first date with this uh, guy. Thank you so much because after seeing the movie with him, I realized I never want to talk to him again. Because there's a there's a scene where he uh, where she like steals some dog food, and like some people are like, why the, why would she steal dog food? That was the stupidest thing. Like you know she had a little bit of money still, and like you know she's just an idiot. She got herself into this problem. Where other people are like, no, that you know I I feel for this poor girl with a dog, and like. It was just really interesting to see, you know, the judgments that people would then throw onto it. I don't actually, I don't even know what your question was. No, I was think now. that's really interesting, but I, I do want to, I mean, I want to talk about politics maybe a little yeah. bit um, after, after we've seen something else, but um, I was thinking about place and, you know, you were talking yesterday also about how all your films have this kind of center, they come out of the ground of Oregon, they come out of the people that live there, the suburbs, the wild spaces, um, but, did, how is that for you being so close to that, like living yeah. there? Did it take you living away to be able to? <laughs> it did, it helped a lot. Like I, um, uh, yeah, some of you uh, might have seen yesterday a class thing that I did where I showed some um, not very um, mature work um, that I had done previous to this. And um, following, um, yeah, a, a, a less than notable beginning. I moved to New York for a while um, and got an MFA there. And the writing that I was doing still remained very much grounded in the Pacific Northwest where I'm from. Um, and it was a really interesting experience to um, start writing about there from a different place. Um, and it was really clarifying in a way because um, partly um, simply I, I was left only with what I kind of remembered in a certain way, and I, my, my memory is not particularly strong, and it kind of, it became clear that like what I remembered about my 
home was significant. There was some reason I was like that had stuck with me and that certain details of, of that now absent kind of place were available. And so it just, it became a much simpler process where like there is, I, you know, all that kind of, um, all that kind of information uh, that uh, was just sort of in front of me disappeared and there was only this kind of, you know, plateau left. Um, yeah, I had a, this is like a different thing, but I have a friend who had a traumatic brain injury um, not long ago. And uh, he, for a while, um, was, um, like he couldn't even walk out on his back porch because just the sounds of the leaves and stuff were so overwhelming to him. And it was just really interesting to realize just how much of your brain is about sort of filtering things out, you know? Um, and that like it's so much of, of, of cognition and, and like uh, consciousness is about, um, yeah, like redacting things. And um, that, that sort of process of redaction was really um, crucial, yeah. So how do you go about maintaining that sense of Oregon as a place of the imagination yeah. now that you're back living there? It's been interesting. I mean, I mean, part of me, part, the, the, there is that sense of the landscape and that kind of raw um, experience of the earth. Um, but the other part of, of, of a kind of regional identity that I am interested in is the actual um, history of the place and some of the, um, the ways in which um, larger currents of history kind of flow through a particular place or the way um, smaller micro histories that are only relevant to a particular place um, can operate. And so um, in a sense, it's the, the idea of the place, you know, um, or the culture of the place. And um, those things have interestingly kind of evolved over the course of my life in, in Oregon. Um, I mean, when I moved there as a kid, um, I think there was still the sense of the Pacific Northwest as a very unknown kind of place. Like there was something, um, you know, there's a poet uh, named Richard Hugo um, who is from the Northwest, who is in a kind of Raymond Carverish vein, um, and who kind of spoke of the Northwest as basically a place where you break down, you know, like people stay there because they just got stuck, you know? Um, and that was sort of the place that I felt like I grew up, like it seemed very out of it, it seemed very marginal to the world. Um, but over the course of my lifetime, like because of, you know, globalism and because of just various things, um, a different idea has kind of grown around the place. And like, just as a citizen, I find that an interesting thing, you know? I mean, and as a, as a writer, um, you have a, a kind of an engagement with your times, you know? And, and times, like, if you're in a place over time, like, it continues to sort of nourish you in a certain way. I mean, that's just super yeah. banal. No, I think that's interesting. I mean, I'd like to look at the old Joy clip next and maybe talk about that in terms of the guys coming from that place in the way yeah. that you just described. You know, they are probably, they, they adhere more to that earlier version of yeah. living in Oregon than the more, uh, you know, gentrified or whatever yes. one it is. Um, and also just that's, because this is the first story that um, caught the attention of Kelly Reichert that she then wanted to make into a film, I think it's very interesting to examine the differences and the similarities between the story itself yeah. and, and the <clears throat> resulting film and just maybe talk a bit about 
um, the crafting of the scene and the pressure that's underneath this yeah, okay. scene. Yeah. Now, who the hell am I? They don't care about my theory. Doesn't mean shit to them. I don't have any numbers for it. you, Mark. I miss you really, really bad. I want us to be real friends again. There's something between us, and I don't like it. I want it to go away. Hey man, what are you talking about? We're fine. <laughs> are you serious? Do you really think that? Of course. Of course I do. We're, we're fine. We're totally fine. I don't know. God. Oh. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just being crazy. I'm sorry. I'm just being crazy. I know. Don't pay any attention to me, okay? We're fine. Everything's totally fine. Feel a lot better now. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny to watch that. Uh, so that is, um, so yeah, like in a, in, a, in a strange and abstract and maybe elliptical way, to me that is like a very much about a kind of regionalia and regional identity. And I was talking about this yesterday too. Um, I mean, for me, uh, the old Joy story was uh, <clears throat> very much about a peculiar brand of um, in my mind, like West Coast uh, masculinity and a certain kind of new age um, uh, uh, masculinism that is, uh, um, I mean, I'm sure it's all over the world in many ways, but it's, you know, it's about um, uh, sensitive men, men who are, uh, that hug each other and are um, uh, uh, open with each other. And, um, but I was interested in exploring that in a, in a more dramatic way um, by trying to find some of the subcurrents of, of kind of competition and, and kind of domination that even happen within this like very tender kind of masculinity. Um, and um, you know, the way in which some of those, those uh, feelings of, of or, or those kind of ideas of openness and kind of, um, you know, non-patriarchal masculinity can still become cudgels that are, um, you know, um, 
that, that just fall back into kind of old patterns. And so, um, yeah, to me that scene was very much about, you know, a kind of competition of openness or a competition of, um, of sensitivity in some kind of way. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that, that is very much, uh, to me, a, a familiar kind of, of um, well, I mean, it's not like familiar like that, but you know, that, that, I don't know, I found it grounded, it, it was strangely grounded in the, the region that I'm from also. I yeah. think, too, just on a sort of um, craft level, it does this amazing thing of releasing a certain amount of tension that's been going on between the men and their silence, um, their mutual silence, and then, you know, the fact that uh, the Kirk character says these things, and, and yeah. that erupts for a little bit, but then he resets the tension again at the end yes. of the scene. It's just re-established in a really different way. Yes. Um, and is that something that you think you naturally do as a writer? Like, does that, because it occurs in your fiction as well as in the... Yeah, um, I mean, I do, I mean, I guess I have, that, that is partly just something that is um, inherent in the kind of arc of a scene in a certain sense, you know, that, I mean, you need to, um, you know, uh, explore some kind of tension in the scene and you need to come out of a scene um, with hopefully a different angle on that tension or like a, a deepening of that tension or sort of a new question that needs to be answered. And so um, I, I feel like it is something that, um, that uh, if a scene is 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 working properly, um, it it definitely needs to 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 end with some uh, emotional or moral question that then the subsequent scenes are going to address in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean this this one is kind of strange because the you know the issue between them is so nebulous and emotional. You know, I mean there's not like a um, a particular um, problem in the same way of like not having enough money. It's just, it's, it is, um, it's the kind of free-floating um, tension between people that is, um, yeah, that's easy to kind of, um, th that does occasionally crystallize, but then also can, can float away again. And I think it's, it's a measure of Kelly's like incredible filmmaking that she was able to, um, to track on something that is that uh, ineffable and kind of um, invisible. Um, because in short stories, like that's kind of your your bread and butter, you know. I mean, that's what you do. But not very many um, movies, even of the small variety, like are willing to travel traffic in in subtle gradations of human interaction. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah, much more about vengeance or redemption or things like that that don't make any sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to that, I wonder if you could just read this little paragraph from the original story, because that, um, and, and you know, maybe we could talk about how that does okay. arrive on the screen in, okay. in a way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the story takes place from the, um, in the voice of um, Mark, the sort of more sane character. Uh, we kept walking, our shadows moving and shifting blobs over the ground. The sound of river rocks rattled under our feet. We turned around a bend in the stream and a curtain of poplars came into view, shivering in the distance, showing the white backsides of their leaves. I watched them for a while until an ancient, aching sorrow rose up in my chest. It was a familiar feeling. Something in the mute, unconscious trees resonated inside me. Something so deep and fundamental it failed to remember its own source anymore. I watched the poplars flickering against the hard blue of the sky. What is sorrow, I thought. What is sorrow but old, worn-out joy? Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, 
And it's funny, okay, so obviously that happens like in a character's head uh, in the story, and it was interesting to watch Kelly and um, everyone struggle with how to find a way to incorporate the title of the <laughs> um, whole thing into um, dialogue in some kind of way. And so she ended up um, kind of repurposing that, um, uh, a, a couple of those lines uh, into a, a recounting of a dream that one of these guys had um, and that occurs at, at kind of a pivotal emotional moment. And it was inter it's interesting though because it did shift the kind of meaning in the in the um, in between the two texts. Like I mean, here this it was sort of a uh, an idyllic moment. You know, it was this kind of um, response to to nature in a certain way, uh, like a sort of classically romantic sort of uh, moment. Um, in the movie, it becomes. Um, yeah, something else a little bit that it's yeah. It's given to Kurt in the and, film. And as yeah, well. and it's also so, it's given to Kurt, so the other like character. Totally yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, just I think you know this is a totally digression, but Eleanor Catton's adapting the Luminaries, her own novel for um, the television series, and mm -hmm. I think she was talking about like putting dialogue in other characters' mouths. So there's yeah. a sense in which I think that something belongs to the story. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I find that actually strangely often happens where you'll be writing something and you're like, well, what if the other person says that? And suddenly the whole scene makes so much more sense. Like it's, it's weird how often just like shuffling the, the deck on, on who says what is, is incredibly helpful. Yeah, I think that's great because it really speaks to don't be in your little box of what the character is and has totally. to and, and would do. Totally. Yeah, um, that's cool. Um, okay, I was thinking too about the way that these you know, Old Joy and Train Choir exist as stories, and even though Train Choir is largely driven through Verna's, the character in that is called Verna, not Wendy, um, through her action, you do know a lot more about what's going on. You're told a lot more about, you're told really early on that she's going to Alaska for these various reasons, and in the film it takes quite a long time to reveal that. Um, so I can understand the stories working as a particular document to then make the script from, but mm -hmm. when you have written Meek's Cut Off, how did that work for you and for the director um, to not have this sort of prose version of the character's mm -hmm. interiority to, yeah. to um, go from? I think it was, it, was it, it, it turned it into a slightly more um, prick, uh, a more prickly process. Um, these, the first two, like by having, by having the, the prose stories, um, there was something about that that just kind of drained a lot of the kind of, um, I don't know, territoriality that can happen, I think, in writing versus directing. I mean, I think there are, you know, inherent sort of authorial, you know, um, egos involved or, or just like, whatever, just, you know, um, you're different people. Um, having the stories, I was like, always I had my story and then she could do whatever she wanted with it. And I think for her it was helpful to have some of those um, background prose paragraphs um, to kind of guide some of the what turned into silent sequences, or um, I mean, there's a shot in uh, <laughs> there's a shot in Wendy and Lucy. I remember where uh, even in the script, it ended up like uh, the Michelle character um, is like looking at someone and and trying to alter something through her telepathy, you know, which is like a 
no-no in screenwriting. Like, you know, you can't have someone like attempting telepathy on the screen because it doesn't, you can't, on the page, because you can't get that on the screen. But, but for them, it was actually a helpful sort of thought to have in mind as they were um, going through a particular scene. Um, moving into like straight uh, screenwriting, yeah, it did. It caused things to become a little more tense in a way because um, um, some of the, but yeah, so, so on a personal level, I, I guess it did. But the, um, um, but then, you know, there comes a point then when the script, yeah, it just definitely enters the hands of, of the director and, the, and everyone else making the movie and um, it, things, yeah, things just evolve dramatically. But for your process, how does that work? Like, do you, are you writing um, prosy kind of character notes for yourself, um, or are you discovering them through the dialogue, through the scene, or I the think, action? Yeah, um, the, the, like, the, the scripts do not, um, they're not um, overwritten, I, I think. I, I mean, I, I, I have come to realize, like, directors and art directors and everyone um, they like to bring their own stuff to a script, and they actually almost resent a writer who is over um, over controlling with some of that stuff. Um, I remember uh, looking at a there's a, a screenplay that uh, Fitzgerald wrote I once saw that was um, just so insanely detailed and ornate, and you're like, obviously this guy's not trying to write a script; he just wants to like make a movie, you know. And um, I think. You know, part of the part of the job of of screenwriting ends up sort of being l way lazier than you would be as a actual prose writer. You know, and like allowing yourself not to finish certain yeah, things. You know, I think it's I just hard. I think it's hard for some like good and diligent <laughs> writers to just like um, allow themselves to like not finish something properly, you know? But you must have it, and you, you know, you must have it all there. To, uh, can we look at, can we look at the mix cut? I want to look at the mix cut of um, the first clip, actually, and we might just... We're having an argument about whether screenwriting is harder or well, not. Then, yeah, no. not just that, but also, <laughs> also that I think, yeah, I think being minimal is really hard, so... Right, right. I, I will say, just before that, like, by, do, by the time we were doing Meek's Cutoff, I think there was a, uh, I had certainly a much fuller understanding of, of, of Kelly's kind of um, rhythms and stuff. And so I think um, we both just very much more understood, like, what the ultimate thing was going to feel like, that, you know, the script was designed in some ways to incorporate some of these dilations of, of, of emptiness and open space. And, and you just start to understand the other person's voice in a certain way. So anyway, but we can watch something.
love it. It seems so yeah. much. And it's the I mean, when I saw the film whenever it came out, and, and it's the scene that totally stayed in my mind, you know, mm -hmm. this sort of complete way. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the whole film is like a poem. I mean, it's like this sort of, so, yeah. yeah. So just just to clarify a little bit, like maybe it was evident that the the shooting twice was the sort of signal to the men who are currently out searching for water um, that there's been some sort of problem. This like double shot is the signal to far flung other emigrants to sort of return. And it was funny. I remember uh, like one of our producers was like, "God, oh, do you have to wait the whole time to see them shoot twice?" And it's like. And Kelly and I are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course, that's the whole thing, you know? I mean, it's like this thing is about these kinds of durations and, um, and, about, and about the kind of uh, space of the West, you know? I mean, it's, it's um, in, in many ways, it is a, a kind of anti-Hollywood Western in that it really, um, it really uh, uh, observes the reality of, of just the, the spatial immensity of, of the place that they're in. And it's like that, um, yeah, just the, the kind of, yeah, to me, I just, I, I just love having to wait and watch her do that. They had to go to like a pioneer school kind of thing to learn how to like load the gun and like do a bunch of other stuff. And I, I'm just so amazed that Michelle like learned to do it so well. I mean, it's like that was, I, to me, I watched it, I'm like, that seems so fast. <laughs> like, that's incredible. But it's a brilliant character moment for her as well, because she is so, you know, she's so sort of steely through the whole thing, and, and she's holding so much of it together, and right. that she's the one to do that. And, and that, yeah, the great moment of surprise and dropping the sticks. And um, I wanted to ask you, too, about the character of the Cayuse man who, you know, startles her, who comes back and, and plays this really sort of key role in the film. Um, and about you know how you yeah. went about writing his character and yeah. what the age brought to yeah. him. Yeah, um, no, it's it's an it's a very interesting uh, to me story. Um, so the the story of Meek's cutoff is actually based um, around like very loosely on um, an actual episode of uh, the early Oregon Trail, which was the the westward migration of you know Europeans uh, across North America. Um, and the, the basic story is about uh, a mountain man uh, that this group hires to guide them across the sort of last mountain uh, uh, mountain range, um, across the desert and over the mountains, but um, who turns out not to actually know the way. And so this, this particular wagon train is lost in the desert, kind of going around in circles, um, potentially um, like either being led either by an incompetent person or, um, or an actually evil person. They, they're not really able to tell whether he's um, stupid or malign, um, which was part of the sort of Bush era resonance that I was hoping for in that um, story. Um, uh, there, there is an actual uh, account. Uh, uh, they kept diaries, and there are, um, you know, some first-person accounts of that uh, voyage. And there were encounters with uh, native peoples, um, s somewhat, but they're not they're not really explored in the documents. You know, like it, it there it's not um, that 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 was where a lot of imagination had to sort of come in. But um, and for me, that was where the um, the real uh, narrative um, crux of the whole story came in because it really does, it ends up um, becoming a story about this group of white settlers um, who um, come across a lone uh, native uh, person in the desert 
and who then sort of have to um, either have to communicate uh, across a kind of unreachable language barrier and then have to decide like, um, again, whether to sort of trust this person to guide them towards water or possibly some other fate. Like there's this the, a, a kind of um, uh, a fairly like existentialist kind of uh, colonialist uh, encounter going on here. And, um, and it was a very like delicate and strange operation to, to write uh, this um, uh, American Indian character who, um, was at once uh, a kind of um, vessel for this white racist sort of gaze, um, but that was not just purely a function of that either. I mean, the movie is very much about um, the, uh, the racism of this white um, group, and, and to, to, you know, it, it's, it's like a Camus kind of story in a certain way, and, and it just, it was a very delicate operation to try and create a human character who also was kind of absorbing some of that gaze. And like we were talking before, it was um, to, to sort of, to, to objectify that gaze rather than just indulge in that gaze. And it became a kind of, um, yeah, like a, it, it was, it was a, a tricky thing to kind of understand how to do, yeah. yeah. And, and just practically, like in terms of the language and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, did you work closely with well, the actor? Yeah. Practically, on yeah, with the language was really quite insane. So um, the, um, the Indian character is meant to be a, a member of the Cayuse tribe at that uh, time. Uh, there are currently only three people, I think, in the world who speak that language anymore. Um, and so I did go speak to one of those people um, who, uh, like, uh, yeah, it was, I think we just wanted to get paid to, to do it and we didn't have any money to do it. So we kind of shifted that then to the Nez Perce language of which there are probably 33 speakers or something right now. And there's a language center um, at the, um, on one of the reservations out in Eastern Oregon um, uh, with uh, um, a group of people who are, you know, maintaining the kind of knowledge of the language and teaching it, and were incredibly helpful in translating certain dialogue into um, Nez Perce. Um, then our actor Rod um, is from. He's he obviously does not speak Nez Perce. Well, not obviously, but he's of uh, I think uh, Crow descent, and um, had an amazing faculty for languages. Like speaks like like seven different um, languages or something, but ended up having to memorize his lines phonetically and um, would be out like doing his lines with like, you know, like a rock with like a few notes on it just so he could kind of remember a little bit like what the sort of phonetics of it were. So by the time it all comes out, like God knows exactly. And then plus with the editing where then Kelly was editing the movie without really understanding that language either. Um, like it's it's it becomes incredibly garbled and and probably um, you know well just torn up you know but uh, but I do think we we tried as hard as we possibly could you know to to make it as 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 genuine as possible um, knowing that, that that it was never gonna like really fully succeed mm -hmm. you know yeah. And that's presumably because you can't tell that story without having to... No, I mean, so know, much of the story is predicated on this, like, language barrier, you know? I mean, 
to have, like there's other questions like, oh, are you guys gonna subtitle um, the, you know, the, the native dialect? And it's like, no, that's the whole point is that, you, they, that the, the viewer like the, um, like the immigrants are not able to like actually understand it and this is, this is part of the kind of barrier they're facing, yeah. It's really interesting how both of um, his motivations and Meek's motivations are these two unknown things that are, are pushing, and, and yes. I guess pushing up against those white savior tropes as well, and, totally. and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Very and, the, and the Meek character like ends up, yeah, being a much more violent and kind of uh, monstrous figure than um, than the other settlers themselves, and it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he also gets some really great lines, and I wonder um, if we could just watch that. Um, the next Meek clip, which might be the last clip we've got time for, um, but we'll talk about that. You never womaned, Mr. Meek? Indeed I have, numerous times. Squalls of these parts start looking mighty white after 20 years' time. Oh, dear. Sometimes I get the sense you don't care for me much, Miss Tethero. Oh, I have no feelings one way or the other, Mr. Meek. Yeah, that, that, that's just a kind way of saying you don't like me. I don't like where we are. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're gonna make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronize me, Mr. Meek. Now, well, now I think you're flirting with me, man. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? Well, I, I, I know something or other. <laughs> if you say so. Well, I know women are different from men. I know that much. But I'll tell you the difference if you care to hear it. <laughs> I don't doubt you will. Women. Women are created on the principle of chaos. The chaos of creation, disorder, bringing new things into the world. Men created on the principle of destruction. It's like cleansing, order, and destruction. You think I'm wrong? You can tell me. Chaos and destruction, the two genders always had it. Chaos and destruction. Well, I don't know. I have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I just love the fact that they're knitting through that scene. <laughs> it's like, yeah. hello, chaos. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. that um, it, It's also like a kind of an anti-Western in that it is very much from the perspective of the women, and uh, the, the whole story is, yeah, kind of transpires from the, Michelle's point of view. Um, but um, that, that uh, binary of chaos and destruction um, I, that was just like one of those weird gifts that happened where uh, we have some friends, um, this, uh, actually this sort of trio of witches, we call them. They're these like Wiccan uh, women who live out in the um, woods near us who are like old family friends. And um, we have uh, Thanksgiving with them every year. Like, and uh, one of them, Roberta, who's like a woman I've known my entire life, like at some point during Thanksgiving, um, 
after handing us like the pickles that she had made that year with like weird shavings off the forest floor, um, uh, gave that line about chaos and destruction. She actually was like, that, that was her theory of like the genders, that they're chaos and destruction. And I remember hearing that, I'm like, that is so fucking crazy. That is like, that's like Cormac McCarthy or something, you know? I mean, that's like so great. And, um, and it was just, it ended up being a perfect thing to put in the mouth of, of Stephen Meek, you know? Because I, I truly still don't fully understand what it means, but it's like, it does, it sounds really profound. And, uh, um, and uh, yeah, and, and I love that it came really from like a, truly like a, a Wiccan, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Um, maybe I could ask you a bit about genre, seeing as you're talking about sort of yeah. subverting the Western. Um, we don't have any clips from Night Moves, which is another film that um, John wrote with Kelly Reichert. And it's, um, maybe, but maybe you could just briefly um, tell everybody the setup for the, for the film, because it's kind of a thriller in the same way that Meek's yeah. cutoff is kind of a Western. Yeah. Um, I think Night Moves is really a thriller. I think it's just a straight up thriller, um, as much as we could do. Um, it's a, um, actually, which would be an interesting question. I think it does embrace the genre in a way that like Meeks refuses it. But, um, uh, but uh, Night Moves is, uh, it's like a eco thriller, you could call it. It's about a group of, um, of uh, direct action, like activists who um, embark on a plan to blow up a hydroelectric dam. Um, and so, uh, uh, in some ways, yeah, it follows a kind of heist structure, like you know, like a pulling off a pulling off a event, you know. And so they blow up the dam, and then um, in the aftermath, uh, a camper downriver uh, is killed, and um, then it becomes a kind of more psychological study as this uh, terrorist cell um, kind of turns on itself and. Um, is kind of infested with paranoia and um, recrimination. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I wondered if you could just speak a bit to the politics that you brought to that film. And, and you know, there's, I, I think all your films are very political um, in yeah. very rich ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, um, they are, uh, yeah, I will, they are definitely shaped by political concerns. Um, uh, Night Moves was an interesting one. I mean, that was um, written uh, sort of during the rise of the right-wing Tea Party uh, movement in the United States, and um, it was at a time, um, uh, well, I mean, in, in a time st like even more so now of like um, political um, kind of extremism and almost fundamentalism going on uh, in the United States, but also worldwide, um, and. Uh, people being driven by ideologies in a really extreme kind of way. And so I wanted to do something that kind of explored that idea of people um, acting out of um, very zealous political, uh, um, 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 you know, belief. Um, and uh, I, I, I truly can't comprehend the idea of uh, um, that kind of right-wing extremism, like I just, the idea, the ideas of them seem so patently absurd that I couldn't like really even comprehend making a character that way. But I can comprehend like a very um, radicalized environmentalist, you know, like that to me there was a certain like just touchstone with reality in some of the um, complaints that these particular activists uh, um, held. And, um, but then, um, 
But then to me, the interesting thing was to, to do something sort of perverse with it, you know, and to try and um, um, push, push in some ways uh, characters who I identified with and, and kind of even valorize on a certain level um, into some sort of uncomfortable and, and potentially destructive places. And so um, um, it became an interesting kind of political investigation for myself, like kind of following, following um, kind of political ideas um, beyond the point of, of um, practicality or morality. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And which pissed off some anarchists, so, yeah. yeah. It is a really great interview with John on a website called something like Anarcho Geek, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where he yeah. gets taken to task for writing an unsympathetic anarchist character. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does, it, it create, it's like sort of just weird, like, gradations of, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I guess the part, I think the pro, one of the problems I was saying that uh, in, in the reception of that film was that, like, I take it for granted that most people want to destroy the industrial infrastructure, you know? And there's that sort of like one of the basic premises of the film. And if you don't kind of come at it with like that basic sort of like truth, then, uh, then the whole movie doesn't make that much sense. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just want to follow that up, and then I'll open up to the, um, the floor for questions. So, but I'll, I'll just ask one more first along those lines, which is back to Old Joy. There's this um, extraordinary thing when the Mark character is driving. He always has the radio on to mm -hmm. this talk radio show, which is another, it's a very interesting way of bringing the outside world and the world of politics yeah. um, and yeah. this guy's problems and preoccupations into the film, and that obviously doesn't exist in the story, and I just wondered if that was a choice of yours or of No, Kelly. that was the thing that Kelly brought to it, um, and Old Joy also, I mean, felt very much like a product of, of the Bush era, and he drives around listening to liberal radio, and um, um, it, it both brings in the outside world, and I think it also kind of um, helps define one um, facet of, of, of his own personality and, this, this, and, and, and his kind of, um, you know, um, aggravation or, or kind of uh, fear of, of you know, um, what's, what's happening socially in some kind of way. He's also, another great change that uh, Kelly brought to Old Joy was um, making um, Mark an expectant father. Um, in the story, they're just two old friends who have kind of grown apart. In the film, one of them is, yeah, on the cusp of parenthood, and it, and it does create a much different and richer dynamic between them. That's something I so wish I would have thought of um, in writing the story. Right, yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah. I kind of like that in the story, you don't have, though, you don't have that oh, set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so does anybody have, we would take audience questions now. We've got about 10 minutes um, left in the session, so. You have, if you want to ask a question, raise your hand. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the question is how Kelly and I started working together. Yeah. It's been, yeah, one of the, like, total blessings of my life. Um, 
the question is how did the uh, collaboration with Kelly come into being? Um, so uh, around like the 2000 or so, I uh, became friends with the director, Todd Haynes. He had moved to Portland. Um, it was a really great moment to meet Todd because he was kind of between projects, very open to people and things. I, um, yeah, like I remember meeting him like in some cabin and we were hot tubbing. He just came out to hang out with people, you know, and I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm hot tubbing with Todd Haynes now. It's fantastic. <laughs> Um, but we became good friends, and uh, he and Kelly are old friends, and so it was through um, Todd that I met Kelly. And um, uh, we um, had had uh, some encounters, just like brief sort of social encounters, and she had um, made a, a really great movie in the mid-'90s called River of Grass that uh, um, just got re-released, uh, but then had um, not been able to make a feature for like 12 years and had had like a various, I mean, as people know, it's hard to make a movie. Um, she had come into a, a very small amount of money and was going to invest it in making her own um, uh, a, a new feature for herself. And uh, she read a novel that I wrote uh, called The Half-Life, and she liked it and asked if I had anything to adapt. And the one thing that I had was that story, Old Joy. Um, and but which kind of fit her needs at that time, because she needed something that was very stripped down, um, and in this case, it was literally just a walk in the woods, um, and also that could incorporate her dog, Lucy, um, who, if she left at home, would like destroy her apartment. So it's like, oh yeah, those, those guys can have a dog, you know? <laughs> um, and um, I said this yesterday in the thing, like, I don't think there's another director in the world who would have read the story Old Joy and seen a feature-length movie in it. Um, and I didn't really understand, like, her sensibility at that moment either. It was just like, oh, knock yourself out if you want to make a movie, like, whatever. And um, then she made a beautiful movie. She made a really gorgeous movie. And, um, and in the doing of that, like, we... Um, yeah, I just started to become friends, and it was like the experience of going through Old Joy with her was um, really lovely. And before, you know, we just started working on the next thing, and things have led one to the next. And um, and uh, it's uh, yeah, I think it was. It's been this. It, it, the collaboration has sort of been uh, um, also a kind of becoming friends and becoming um, like incredibly intimate with each other, and like sort of inseparable from just the gossip of our lives, you know? I mean, so much of it is just like talking about our friends and our parents and our the news, and like that has kind of then shaped the, the direction of the projects. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we're not, at the moment we're, like we've done four movies and um, even, even really good friends have to kind of, you know, chill out sometimes, so we're not doing anything right now, but it is, you know, she was living in Portland this summer and like over for dinner like almost every night and it's just now we're just almost relatives, you know. It's been great. Yeah. The receptivity of the collaborators. Um, let's see. You know, it's interesting. So, so the question is about, yeah, kind of um, the the collaborative environment on the East Coast of the United States versus the West Coast. 
Um, I've been really lucky, I think, in that um, I've had, uh, um, I've been able to collaborate with people. I mean, Kelly lives on the East Coast for the most part. Um, and a lot of the people who've worked on the films have come from other places. I, I can't say that there's been like a, I mean, Portland is nice in that it's a small town and that like um, people are up and game for doing interesting things. Like there's not like an overabundance of opportunities. So um, when things come along, people are like ready to jump in and, and work. Um, um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I could really say that there, but, but also I find, you know, there's a, an amazing generosity and hospitality to like New York type people too. It's just, yeah, I, I've, um, I, I couldn't say that there's anything dramatically different there. Yeah, yeah. That makes me want to know about what you say yes to, right? So now you're in a position where people are coming to you with work, um, things that they want you to write or, or work on. Mm -hmm. what, what do you look for? What is like, What's a yes, what's a no, what are those qualities? Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, gigantic amounts of money, definitely, are like a plus, yeah. uh, which never happens. Um, uh, uh, it's not like people, it's not like there's a flood of things coming in. It's not, it's not like they're like, get me that guy who writes the stuff where nothing happens, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I don't think that conversation is happening in uh, Hollywood right now. Um, <laughs> But, um, but there are occasional, like, you know, occasional artful people who want to do things. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I do, I guess I will turn things down that seem just um, self-evidently cliched or, um, or that run, yeah, or just, yeah, that just seem um, really underbaked. But also, I will occasionally say yes to things that I don't necessarily foresee working, you know. Um, Why just, is that? Well, just because you never know. Like, I don't trust myself that much, you know? Like, I often am wrong. So, I mean, shit, there's so many things I'm like, this person's not going anywhere. They're an idiot. And then it's like, oh, they're just won a fucking prize, you know? I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I have, I've learned that I don't know. So uh, sometimes, um, sometimes, yeah, there are, I, I'm willing to, to um, be surprised sometimes. And, um, and even at the worst case, you know, with the film stuff, it's fun because you're always like you meet a new person, you know. So it's like, um, uh, and sometimes that's bad too. I mean, sometimes you end up meeting a person, and you're like, wow, I really actually, I was right. I don't like this person. And um, and uh, but then as a writer, that has a certain um, morbid utility also, you know, because then you can repurpose them in some way um, at a later time. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And like, because otherwise you're just sitting alone all the time. Like, you need some sort of input. So yeah, sometimes it's I will take things just to just out of my own perversion. Cool. Yeah, at the back. Uh, I did not play any part, except I think I did turn her on to Miley Malloy, um, the writer whose work it's based on, um, and. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, there was a time when I like would just sort of try to clear the room of any other like good fiction writers when Kelly would come in. It's like you don't need to know about other fiction writers, you know. It's uh, <laughs> fine. But then once once we sort of agreed that you know she could she could see other people, um, <laughs> then uh, I uh, I tried to you know. 
facilitate that in some way. So I will, I will give myself credit for probably mentioning the name Miley Malloy to her at some point, but that's all. Um, have I thought about directing? Something just so laughable about that idea to me. Um, I, uh, I am technically not very inclined. Um, I, uh, I don't know, and also, um, it just seems like physically really hard work. Um, like, the whole idea of being on set is, it just, yeah, it looks really tiring. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, those things kind of keep me away from it. Um, and also, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I really like the sort of daily discipline of writing. Like, I like to have my creative life um, somewhat under my control, and I like to be able to do it um, in a regular, normal way. And I think um, filmmaking, so much of filmmaking is bureaucratic and administrative and kind of, um, you know, um, extra creative in a certain sense. Um, and I, I don't know that I'm necessarily inclined to do all that stuff. Yeah. Cool. I think we've got time for one more question. Yeah. Can you return to your previous argument about what is harder, what is more difficult for the novel? <laughs> Novels are just so much harder. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I really, I don't see how this could even possibly be an argument. Yeah, it's really, uh, anyway, I'm going to say for the sake of being a good host that John wins this one, although I completely don't agree with him. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll give you my rationale for, yeah. like, um, I mean, to me, like, writing a paragraph is, um, I mean, it's some of the hardest work I can imagine. And part of it is, like, you're having to create a, a continuous breath from sentence to sentence and, like, uh, keep a reader um, moving through this kind of, you know, dream space in a certain sense. Um, and you're having to worry about, you know, so many, like, rhythms and so many, like vocabulary words and just the logic and the colors and the texture. Like a script is, um, I mean, it has dialogue and structure, which are, you know, integral and important things. Um, but it's just this kind of outline of the stuff, you know? And it just, I just, I really, I think Emily's not lazy enough to do it. I think she's, <laughs> I mean, she does it. She does it great, but I think she's just, you know. I, that's my suspicion, is you probably work too hard. I think there is such an art in what you don't put in. Like that to exactly. me, that yeah. sums up you know, your work. But, but it has to be there in, in order to not be there. You take it out, you just never put it in there. I think there's another session right now, yeah? And um, yeah, just one more time, let's say thanks to John Raymond. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> fun. So yeah, if you, if you want to listen to Dave Gibson's presentation, um, if you, if you want to listen to 